Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.
Hey, folks, today is Thursday, June 11, 2020, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Man, quite the busy weekend. Three black men found hanging in different parts of the country. We'll talk about that story also. A black female protester found murdered along with a 75-year-old black woman uh, yesterday in Tallahassee, Florida. What is going on? A man has been arrested in their murder. Also on today's show, we'll talk about, of course, the protest over the weekend uh, that involved Black Trans Matter and talk with the president of the Human Rights Campaign about the today's Supreme Court decision affirming that uh, LGBTQ folks cannot be fired. They are protected by federal law, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Also, Spike Lee talks about his new film, The Five Bloods, on Netflix. Folks, we've got a jam-packed show. Reverend Dr. William Barber is also joining us talking poor people's campaign. Like I said, it's a jam-packed show. It's time to bring the funk and roll the mark on the filter. Let's go. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. As the nation continues to protest the murders of George Floyd, as well as Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, folks, stunning developments over the weekend when Rashad Brooks was shot dead by police officers in Atlanta. The officer who shot and killed him, uh, the mayor announced uh, he should be fired for excessive force. Folks, this led to protests all across Atlanta. The Wendy's, where it took place, actually was set on fire uh, on Sunday. So apparently what happened was Rashad Brooks was in his car. Apparently he was asleep in the drive-thru. Wendy's employee calls police. Police comes on, and then they also uh, confront him. Here's body cam footage that was shot that showed exactly what took place. Hold on, Ms. Brooks. Will you take a preliminary breath test for me? Yes or no? I don't want to refuse anything. Uh, it's yes or no. It's completely up to you. Yes, I will. Okay, just wait here while I grab. I what what kind eat. of drinks did you have? Uh, I'm not sure. It's something she ordered. She said top shelf or whatever. Top shelf what? I'm not sure. It was, like I said, it was her birthday and. You had about one and a half drinks, but you don't remember what kind of drinks they were? No, sir. All right. I really don't, Mr. Ross. All right. I think you've had too much to drink to be driving. So put your hands behind your back for me. Yeah, put your hands behind your back.
folks, uh, obviously shocking and stunning video. Joining us right now is the attorney for the Brooks family, uh, Chris Stewart out of Atlanta. Chris, um, uh, Brooks, the autopsy shows he was shot, suffered two gunshots to the back that caused organ injuries and blood loss. Um, the end of that, your news conference on Saturday as well as on Sunday, you talked about this whole deal, and that is... And the mayor laid out the actions of the police officer were excessive. Critics say, well, wait a minute. Brooks grabbed the taser. He fires it back at them. Explain why you believe these officers were absolutely wrong for the action they took against Rashad Brooks. You know, what it is in policing is they do a full assessment of the entire situation. Uh, they weren't called there for a violent offense. They weren't even actually called there for a DUI. They were called there for somebody sleeping in a car. Uh, they got there. The first officer um, was actually polite, um, told uh, told him to pull to the side and sleep it off or something to that effect. Um, Mr. Brooks complied. Uh, officer Rolf arrived and began an excessive up to 30-minute field sobriety test, which was just ridiculous. But through all that, Ms. Brooks was still polite, still calm, uh, still understanding, still compliant. They patted him down so they knew he didn't have a weapon. They took his license so they have his ID. They have his vehicle so they know he can't go anywhere. Uh, all that factors into what you see happen later. Um, and when he did resist getting handcuffed and ran away and took the taser with him, uh, that still didn't give Officer Rolf uh, the uh, power to use deadly force. He had a non-lethal weapon, uh, which is what a taser is defined as in Georgia. It's the same as having pepper spray or a baton. And that's what, that's what so many people uh, are making the point. That is um, the issue here, the actions of the police officer at the end. He did not have to fire. He didn't. Let's just imagine that video, but he's running away with pepper spray. Everybody would be outraged. But it's the same thing as a taser, according to the law. Taser, pepper spray, baton. They're all the non-deadly weapons. So, you know, you're not going to have it both ways because there's cases where officers have used tasers on African-Americans or, or Caucasians and... You catch them! I mean, look, backup showed up in minutes. I mean, where was he going? You have his car, you have his ID. He asked them, could he just walk home? And that's the thing, Roland, which I'm trying to get policing back to is the empathy, the care. You know, it's not like you pulled this guy over swerving on the highway where he's a danger to society. Yes, he was intoxicated, but he he was already parked. Have him walk home. Say, buddy, call an Uber. You got 10 minutes. I mean, where is the care instead of putting somebody in cuffs when... None of you saw him ever drive that car intoxicated. But even, but even if... Okay, so again, you, you, you perform the test, he goes through it, and then there's a scuffle. Totally... I, I, I get it. Here you are, you, okay, because you, you were making an arrest. I get that part. What I, what I still don't understand is when you have these police departments, the guy's running away. I, I, we saw the video where he turns around with the taser, but he's running away. You have a weapon, a deadly weapon, to kill. I guess for me is, if you're an officer, 
it's like at some point you say, is this actually uh, something where I need to kill someone because he resisted arrest because he was drinking? I think that's why the public is so outraged by this. And then we see videos of white folks losing it. One guy had a hatchet and officers backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up. And that guy's still alive. Yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. That officer's life has to be in imminent danger at that moment of death or serious bodily injury. And as he's running off, there was no moment where his life was in danger to that point. And if you watch the videotape precisely, the officer is already reaching for his weapon before he gets the taser pointed at him. So he was already processing, I'm moving to deadly force. Right, that's, that's right. significant. Right, absolutely. So, guys, roll that video back. Uh, I want you to roll that video back the last 15 seconds, uh, and you'll see exactly what, what, what Chris is talking about. As Brooks is running away, you see the officer grab... You see the officer grab for his gun. He, grab for, he grabs for his gun. And so he's pulling that out to shoot a man who's running away. We have, of course, a similarity, Chris... And that is Michael Slager shot and killed Walter Scott. Same thing. Walter Scott was running away. Slager hung jury on the uh, murder charge in the state, pled guilty to civil rights violations. Uh, And and, and that's sort of a similarity. You made a point at the press conference where... um, uh, I made a point at the press conference where... Slager moved that taser gun. Yeah. I mean, that, that when, I, when I first got the current case, I, that was the first thing that popped to mind. I, I told myself, I was like, oh, my God, another Walter Scott. Because you and I, we, we used to talk on the show about Walter Scott when I was handling that. And that one was so disturbing um, with what occurred. And, you know, Slager put the taser closer to the body so he could justify it. Um, and in this situation, when it was first announced that uh, Mr. Brooks, you know, had the taser pointed at the officer or was, you know, aiming it at him, we thought, at least I thought he was charging at the officer with the taser. But when you see the video, he's just running, pointing it backwards. Um, and at no point could it be justified to use lethal force and not just let him run and catch him down the block. Uh, you announced today that uh, Tyler Perry is paying for the funeral expenses of Rashad Brooks. Uh, and so uh, we certainly thank Tyler uh, for that as yeah. well. Chris Stewart, thanks a lot. All right, thanks, brother. Folks, uh, let's now turn to uh, Randall Ennis. He's a criminal defense attorney and former police officer. Uh, Randall, you've seen that video. You heard with Chris Stewart. Do you agree with his analysis there that and that this was indeed excessive force exhibited by this police officer to shoot Rashad Brooks as he's running away. Well, Roland, clearly uh, the police officer had uh, numerous options uh, when uh, Mr. Brooks uh, was able to get his uh, taser and take off. He could have retreated. They could have called for backup. They could have allowed him to Uh, go to his residence, and they could have picked him up a few hours later. Um, There are several de-escalation type options that that could have occurred. Having said that, Roland, it's very clear how police officers within a moment's notice 
go from effecting an arrest and how that can escalate uh, in a half a second to where they're in uh, what you would call a close body fight where they're not only attempting to protect themselves, but they're protecting, attempting to protect the uh, weapons that they're given. And in this case, it, they were un unsuccessful. Um, largely, we, however, I will say, largely, however, I will say, uh, they certainly had more options at their at their disposal. And that's one. Of, and that's one of the things that that that, that we're, we're seeing across the country, and that is the actions of police. Now, what happens is there are people out here. They say, "Look, look, you've never been a police officer. You don't know what happens in that situation where your life is in danger." Truth be told, if you actually look at that video where their life was really in danger was during the scuffle. But during the actual scuffle, where, where they're on the ground and they go back and forth, you don't know what happens, someone could grab your gun or whatever the heck. So when, when the scuffle ends and he's fleeing, the reality is that the, my life was in danger has actually ended because he's running away. Yes, and and and, and to, to dovetail on that, I mean, these officers, again, I'm a, an attorney in New York, these officers will be judged by Georgia law, and in particular, whether or not their actions were deemed reasonable. In other words, whether a reasonable police officer uh, standing in their shoes would have undertaken the same uh, type of uh, uh, lethal force or whether... Uh, a reasonable officer would have did another thing. What is the standard, you know, in, in that jurisdiction? Uh, that is largely what they will be judged by. But again, um, you know, it highlights uh, how things go awry in a second and, and training, you know, to, to uh, you know, the officer's adrenaline is clearly uh, at a very high level. The training to de-escalate, mm -hmm. to say, hey, let him go. Um, that's where... Um, many police agencies um, may fall short in that additional training, that constant um, honing in that there are uh, other options, uh, particularly when someone is going away from you, running away from you. Right. Um, and, 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 and apparently does not have deadly physical force um, on him. I mean, they, pat, they patted him to begin with. Um, and, and so um, it's not as if he had... Um, uh, a knife, or, mm -hmm. uh, or, or they were able to identify early on. So you know that those are the those are the split um, second decisions and actions that they will be judged by. That's for sure. And you can see, uh, lastly, um, with uh, instances such as this, uh, when someone's fleeing, they turn back and they take a shot. You can you can see mm -hmm. um, uh, even after they were taken down. I heard some voices that were going on between the officer and, and what I presume to be Mr. Brooks at the time. Um, last one. Um, of course, the police chief is stepping down in Atlanta. Uh, the mayor demanded her resignation. Also, I saw, an, I, I saw where reporters said that 19 Atlanta police officers are resigning, complaining about how low morale is. You know, th this is one of the things that I often say, that Police officers are too damn sensitive. That there's this whole attitude of how dare you hold even one of us 
accountable for actions. We saw that with Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore. We saw that in the Laquan McDonald case. They're angry that uh, the officers were fired for the snatching of the two kids out of the car from Morehouse and Spellman. Uh, and then now, now this right here. But how do they think the public feels? This man is dead. Okay, fine. Y'all are resigning because you're pissed off. But Rashad Brooks cannot be brought back to life. Yeah, I mean, that's it. And, and it, you know, it, it bears uh, stating, obviously, condolences uh, to the family. Um, the notion of police officers resigning, um, it's a difficult job. It's made a lot more difficult with the actions that are going on uh, right now with a few, row, uh, you know, uh, officers. I, I think the sensitivity, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but I think the sensitivity um, uh, comes about because uh, the officers, by and large, uh, handle matters on a daily basis, thousands and thousands of matter with, without any incidents, without anything occurring. And then when an incident occurs, uh, such as this uh, or, and others, um, they are highlighted and they are in, in oftentimes in their minds painted with the same brush as the uh, officer that's involved in the incident. And, and that sensitivity um, uh, tends to impact officers. In this particular case, perhaps, um, you know, they feel that the media uh, focuses uh, a lot on the end and not what led up to it, that sort of sensitivity. I'm not saying that's justified, but um, that sort of sends, lends a little insight into an officer's mind. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this here. The reality is, again, you can be an officer. Even if you are a police officer who gets fired, you're still living. Your family gets to see you. Uh, the daughter of Mr. Brooks was waiting for Daddy to come home because it was her birthday on Saturday. She'll never see him. And that's why, I'm sorry, I think too often there's way, that there's this belief from police officers, like, how dare you criticize us when if you have a gun and you have the potential of killing people, yeah, you actually deserve greater scrutiny because that's totally different than somebody else who loses their job or who hasn't killed anyone. Randall Ennis, I certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Criminal defense attorney and former police officer for 22 years. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. I want to bring in my pound, Dr. Avis Jones-DeWeaver. She's political analyst. Michael Brown, uh, former vice chair of the DNC. Um, Avis, I'll start with you. I just got an alert from the New York Times an hour ago. The NYPD will disband a plainclothes team with about 600 officers that has been involved in some of the city's most notorious police shootings. That was an alert from the New York Times. Uh, I, I talked about, again, one reporter saying these office, 19 officers in Atlanta are resigning. There was a SWAT team in Florida. Uh, the, 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 you know, they're upset because the chief took a knee as well. I, again, I think too many of the... We keep hearing, oh, a few, bad, a few bad apples, but too often, significant amounts of police officers, they want protection for the actions and they don't want accountability, Avis. For all of those people who are resigning or, you know, leaving their jobs because they're so outraged, good damn riddance. Bye. You need to be gone. Because if you are that much of a punk that you cannot take verbal criticism, nobody's shooting you down. 
Nobody's attacking you physically. If you're that much of a punk that you cannot take justified criticism, then you are too weak for that badge. You don't need it. And I think that's part of the problem right here. You have a lot of small men who get off on having a lot of power. And when that power is in any way checked, they cannot handle it. So for those of you that are gone, bye. We're not going to miss you. Glad you're gone. Please don't come back. Because clearly, you were not up to the task in the first place. Look, uh, Michael, I get it. I totally get it. Police officers have extremely dangerous jobs. They are going into situations that are dangerous. But they also have massive amounts of protection as well. The law is, is, is how it's situated. And what you hear people saying is, your actions have to be different. And again, the actions of a police officer can lead to the death of someone, Michael. That's the difference. It's absolutely the difference. And until behavior changes, this is going to continue. Now, as a former legislator, I get it. You can move money around. You can certainly take some money out of the police force, put it in different social services programs, jobs programs. Yes, of course you can do that. Cities across America can do that. But until you put behavior on the table and how you make sure that people think about their actions before they pull a trigger, you have to put their pensions on the table, you have to put their legal representation on the table, then who's that's paid for, whether it's the tax dollar, taxpayer, or their families. You have to put things on the table that will make people think about their behavior, just like the Me Too movement. As men started having to change their behavior, before their behavior changed, as they were doing stupid stuff in the office, all of a sudden, they were losing their jobs. All of a sudden, they were ridiculed publicly. And then, hopefully, then behavior will change over time. So until there's strong deterrence, it doesn't matter how much money you move around, it doesn't matter what you do legislatively, it's going to be very difficult to change these patterns. Uh, it is. And at the end of the day, um, you have to have a change uh, in police actions. And again, this is where I say... Fine. You want to quit? Quit. Let's go find 19 more people uh, who know how to behave uh, as being police officers. Let's actually begin to retrain officers where your first instinct is to not shoot and kill. And look, I get it. They're trained to shoot and kill. But a person running away from you is completely different than a person running towards you. Absolutely. And again... The standard, I think, that is in the law, and keep in mind, police officers know that the standard is much different for them. So that's why they think, well, if this happens, it'll be okay. I'll be fine. Maybe I'll get reassigned. But nothing drastic will happen to me. Even the standards have to change because police are held to a higher standard. They're carrying a gun. They have a badge. So the whole process has to change. And again, I'm not saying that folks shouldn't legislatively try to change things relative to economics. Very important. But until you put things on the table to make police officers think twice, these things are going to continue. Well, let's go to this other story, which is quite stunning. A 19-year-old 
Oluwatoyin Salau, or Toyin, as she was known, who recently sought justice over police killings, has been found dead after going missing on June 6. Her body was found in Tallahassee, Florida. Also, the body of 75-year-old Victoria Sims was also found, and 49-year-old Aaron Glee Jr. has been uh, taken into custody, even though authorities are not clear on whether the two deaths are related. Here's a video Toen posted on social media just before she went missing. Nah, can't nobody silence me. I just want, it's not that all lives don't matter, but right now, our lives matter. Black, Black lives, lives matter. matter. Yes. Black trans lives matter. Yes. Trans lives matter. Yes. Because guess what? We all minorities, but right now, like, Let's focus on the person who got killed. Tony McDay was a black trans man. Okay? We're not doing this. We're doing this for him. We're doing this for our brothers and our sisters who got shot. But we're doing this for every black person. Because at the end of the day, I cannot take my fucking skin color off. I cannot mask this shit, okay? Everywhere I fucking go, I'm profiled whether I like it or not. Like, I'm looked at whether I like it or not. Being, first of all, I want white people to realize their fucking privilege. Yes, ma'am. No one can look at you and tell anything about you unless you give them that information. Wherever the fuck I go, I'm profiled. Look at my fucking hair. Look at my skin, bruh. This shit, I can't take this shit off. So guess what? I'm going to die about it. Yes, I'm going to die about my fucking skin. You cannot take my fucking blackness away from me. My blackness is not for your fucking consumption, nigga. It's not. It's not. Okay? It's not. And y'all need to listen. It's Like I said, it's okay to be angry. Use wisdom. Don't move stupidly and get yourself hurt. Y'all already seen, we all in this together. I, I didn't mean to like divide anybody. We all in this together. My brother who got, um, he got ran over. Y'all need to know who the fucking enemy is. I, I, sometimes I get mad, but I'm not trying to divide nobody. Y'all need to remember who the fucking enemy is. It's right. racist Tallahassee. White racist Tallahassee. Because those are the niggas that ran our fucking brother over. So y'all need to keep that in mind. The same, the same energy that we had when we were walking the fucking streets, keep that with you at all fucking times. Don't let nobody take away your blackness from you. Your blackness is not supposed to be subdued at all. It's not. Oh, she was 19 years old. One of the things that I think we, and again, we don't have all of the details from police in terms of what happened. There have been some reports that say that she was sexually assaulted before uh, she was killed. We don't know how she was killed. We don't know if she was shot, if she was strangled. We don't know any of that. All we do know is that her body and that of the 75-year-old AARP volunteer, both of those bodies were discovered last night. Uh, it is uh, it is is beyond a sad story. Uh, and one of the things that uh, we have to remember, and a, lot, a lot of Black Lives Matter protesters uh, have said, said this to me over the years, that we have to realize that when people are out there protesting, their faces are being seen and they're being noticed. Look at the number of uh, Black Lives Matter activists uh, in Ferguson who have died. Many say suspiciously, 
when you have King Seals, uh, who died in uh, a car a car burning. Others supposedly committed suicide. And so these things have been taking place uh, consistently over for a long period of time. And so uh, we're waiting to get more information on exactly what happened uh, to her to figure out. But again, just a tragic, tragic story. Uh, a 19-year-old sister uh, who... Um, man was out there protesting who now is no longer with us folks uh, two black men go to another story two black men were found hanging from trees within the two, within the last two weeks in palmdale california 24 year old robert fuller was found hanging from a tree outside city hall last week officials initially suggested fuller died by suicide but the circumstances uh, uh resemble a recent death in nearby victorville about 45 miles about 45 miles away. Now, days earlier, the body of 38-year-old Malcolm Harsh was found in a tree outside the city's library. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department says it does not currently suspect foul play, but both families are skeptical. In both cases, people who knew the men suspect they were murdered. Malcolm Harsh's body was found on May 31st, and Robert Fuller's body was found on June 10th. Um... Michael, the thing here is um, these need to be obviously fully investigated. Um, we don't know. Um, have folks obviously committed suicide? Yes. We told the story last week of a prominent uh, television writer uh, who hung herself, 39 years old. Uh, but, you know, when you see two nearby, it certainly raises questions, Michael. It certainly does, and we have to wonder. I think a lot of I was on uh, listening to a group chat, and folks were wondering if any of the white supremacist groups were going to literally come to some of the protest marches. And I'm not talking being secret squirrel, trying to you know pretending and burning things down. I'm talking standing up across the street and voicing their opposition to Black Lives Matter and the other protesters. So I wonder if this is the way they have decided to manifest itself and to say, this is a way we're going to speak up and start hanging people from trees. Because I've heard of a, from a variety, clearly, suicide is a problem in all communities, clearly also in the African-American community. But I've heard of a lot of ways people kill themselves. I haven't heard brothers hanging themselves from trees. So I'm not sure about that. So clearly, it has to be fully investigated. Avis? This is so exhausting because we know that in 2006, so this was 14 years ago, the FBI issued a report that specifically said that police departments across the country were being infiltrated by white supremacists and skinheads all over the nation. And you know what was done about that? Not a damn thing. You know, I, 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 I'm so angry about this. Who kills themselves right across the street from City Hall? That powerful warrior sister that you just showed on that screen is not the type of spirit that takes her own life. Let's just be real about that. That's a warrior right there. She's not going to raise the white flag and take her own life. She was murdered. I, I am so tired of people trying to explain away the obvious. 
There are people who are hunting down black people all across this country, and some of them wear blue uniforms. So let's just be very, very real about that. It is, and it's, if you, how many, how many protesters from Ferguson just ended up dead? Do we think that's a coincidence? Yeah, several, a number of them. It is not. This is a pattern. And I'm tired of people acting like, oh, so for some reason, all of these black, of course people commit suicide. All sorts of people commit suicide. But this is a pattern that is specifically related to a movement. And until people stop trying to, you know, explain the way the obvious by all of these weak sorts of assertions because they do not want to investigate, because they probably will know that when they investigate, they'll be turning in their own people. This thing will never stop. This is, this is a concerted attack against black people across this nation, and we need to wake up and call it exactly what it is. Um, you also, of course, you have um, the story that took place uh, this weekend uh, out of uh, Michigan, where you had another sister uh, who was uh, found uh, who was uh, found dead. Her name is uh, Priscilla Slater. In, in fact, let me pull this up because um, uh, Priscilla Slater was her name. And uh, go to my iPad, please. It says the headline: Six Harper Woods personnel placed on leave following the death of Priscilla Slater. Now, she died while in custody on June 10th. Uh, and um, folks are trying to figure out exactly uh, what took place uh, in that case. There's another case out of South Carolina uh, where pop body cam footage was released. This took place last year of, a, of an African-American who was shot and killed while in handcuffs in South Carolina. Um... You know, when you begin, first of all, and I'm not saying it's the panacea, but this is also why you have to have as much video as possible, Michael. I don't... Dash cam, mandatory. Body cameras, mandatory. To see what is happening, uh, and you have to have it because we've seen too many cases. We simply cannot trust the account of police officers because they will change their story and they will lie. And it's with the technology the way it is, you don't have to have an on and off switch on the camera. It's on all the time. So that way there's no confusion. There's no, oh, I just wanted to turn it off for a minute. No, it has to be on all the time. Clearly, if you're taking a restroom break and things like that, that's a little different. But the technology can allow for that. You have, there's only one way to have accountability. Those kind of cameras that you just described, as well as you have to take the investigation away from the investigators and the investigatees. You have to have an independent agency that does the investigations. You can't have folks investigating themselves. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in sports. It doesn't work in business. So why should it work in law enforcement? In fact, uh, uh, Avis, I saw um, another story today where a 911 dispatcher was so shocked by what they were seeing with George Floyd that they immediately called a supervisor to be dispatched to the scene. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm glad that there was someone in the entire system that gave a damn, okay? 
because what happened with Mr. Floyd was just absolutely atrocious. I, I know I just saw recently uh, the, a, a new video that is of a separate person who apparently they came up after Mr. Floyd was dead. And it showed how long his murderer still sat there on his neck with his hands in his pocket. In fact, I'm going to read this here. It says a 9-11 dispatcher. Go to my iPad, please. Watching real-time footage of George Floyd's arrest in South Minneapolis was so alarmed by police officers' actions that she called a supervisor who did not immediately respond to the scene, according oh to a newly released phone recording. The recordings of a phone conversation between the unidentified dispatcher and a Minneapolis police supervisor were released on the Monday on the city's website. They raised more questions. Um, this is what the quote said. I don't know. You can call me a snitch if you want to, but we have the cameras up for squad's 320s call. And I don't know if they had to use force or not, but they got something out of the back of the squad and all of them sat on this man. So I don't know if they needed you or not, but they haven't said anything to me yet. Yeah, they haven't said anything yet. Just a takedown, which doesn't count, but I'll find out. The supervisor responded, no problem. We don't ever get to see it. So when we see it, we're just like, well, that looks a little bit different. But the, the, the dispatcher said, sounds good. Bye. Wow. My goodness. They knew it was wrong. And then the, the it sounds like the supervisor was like, oh, well. You know, that whole department just needs to be cleaned out. Everybody needs to be fired, and they just need to start all over. That's ridiculous. Everybody needs to go. Bye. It is, um, again, it's uh, all um, uh, quite uh, different. And when you talk about this reaction that we're seeing across the country, how folks are responding, um, you also, of course, have athletes who are getting involved and using their voice as well. Uh, I want to bring up uh, my next guest is Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, of course, with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza, uh, folks, actually, first of all, this weekend, the Poor People's Campaign, uh, they're going to be very much involved uh, in their digital gathering. Uh, and that's going to be taking place. Not only that, uh, what's going to happen I'm is uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza was, was transformed into a church on Sunday morning with thousands of mostly African-American worshipers praying, protesting, kneeling, and dancing near the White House after marching from the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. It was one of the largest faith-based events in the 17 days of protesting. Organizers said that was because of extra caution in the African-American community, which has been, of course, hard hit by the coronavirus pandemic. Um, Reverend Barber, of course, is the president of the Repairs of the Breach. Reverend Barber, before we talk about the Poor People's Campaign, I do want to ask you about this here. Folks, go to my iPad. Uh, the uh, the uh, head football coach for the Oklahoma State Cowboys, Mike Gundy, uh, he went fishing and he wore an OAN shirt. Now, that's the uh, very far right-wing conservative um, news network that Donald Trump loves even more. The, and so this brother, who is a le was a leading rusher in the nation, he tweeted, I will not stand for this. This is completely insensitive to everything going on in society, and it's unacceptable. I will not be doing anything with Oklahoma State until things change. Reverend Barber, you, when you have athletes saying no, when you've got Kyrie Irving urging NBA players not to resume play, we are living in a totally different period 
than we've ever seen, I dare say, uh, since 1968? Well, I think so, Roland. And I think that part of what we're seeing is, you know, there's a song that says, um, uh, uh, my Nina Simone was a tribute to Nina Simone, and it was talking about this, it's a rise, it's time for a rise. You know, it's one thing to be, it's another thing to get out of bed. So a lot of people have been made woke, as we say, over the past few years. But the more and more they have seen the blatant white supremacy come out of the White House, both in rhetoric and in policy. And then when you think about it, in less than a month, we've seen, heard about four people being shot, you know, by Brother Avery, uh, our sister in Louisville, I mean, killed. Um, and then we saw Brother Floyd just lynch choked to death by knee. Uh, and then the shooting uh, in Atlanta, and we saw uh, the, the cop, well, I understand the cop said, uh, I, I got him. I got him. And then we think about all these people that are dying from COVID that didn't have to die. So people are saying, we better get up. It, you know, we, it's one thing to be aware, but it's another thing to start acting on it. And with these athletes starting to say, uh-uh, we're not going to feed your money machine anymore. We're not going to have anything else to do with this. It is an important moment. It is an important moment in our history. It's a, it's a moment long overdue. Uh, it's a powerful moment. And it's a moment also that why we need to put, you know, an agenda around it and a clear one, uh, which is one of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing this coming Saturday. When you talk about that, I mean, look, you wrote a book called The Third Reconstruction. I argue, mm -hmm. I argue with all the things that we have seen in the last three weeks, with the protests continuing, with it just gathering, gathering, then you begin to see the actions of corporations. Then you begin to see, again, the disbanding of this uh, undercover police unit in New York, some 600 officers. When you begin to see these mayors now trying to move with executive authority, uh, executive orders, and the New York State Assembly are passing their laws last week, all of a sudden, these things are moving. These things are all moving because of what took place on today, three weeks ago in Minneapolis, to George Floyd, what took place to Breonna Taylor, what took place to Amara Arbery. That's why I say this is the reckoning, and this is truly, I think, the beginning of what is a third reconstruction. Explain to people what that means, what a third reconstruction looks like and entails. Well, you know, the third reconstruction, I think that language is right. I think that it, all, it did happen because of all of those events but also because of all the groundwork that's been laid, just like with the first Reconstruction, which came out of slavery right after the Civil War, you had black people and white people, actually, who joined together and, and began to fight for political power and for fundamental change in this country. They rewrote state constitutions. They changed education laws. They changed criminal justice laws. Uh, they changed voting laws. Now, in that Reconstruction also, uh, uh, Roland, you had a backlash. And the backlash always started with rhetoric. It included tax cuts. It included trying to undermine voting rights. And it included trying to rewrite criminal justice laws, many of the things that we see happening today. Uh, then after that Reconstruction ended around, around the late 1880s, you had a second Reconstruction. Not many people like to say it began with the Brown versus Board of Education decision and went all the way through 1968, the death of Dr. King and Robert Kennedy and others. 
Again, what you saw was a fundamental shifting in laws, civil rights laws, voting laws, uh, uh, addressing poverty and those issues. There, there was addressing the war. There was a demand from the people. Uh, and in some ways, this modern civil rights movement started, you know, with the impetus of the death of Emmett Till, uh, his grotesque picture and an open casket uh, his mother allowed to happen, pushed Rosa Parks and others to say, if you kill Emmett Till, we're going to take out the whole system of Jim Crow. And that's what Reconstruction is about. It's a fundamental reordering of society, reconstructing it more toward the ideals that we often say a lot about, uh, but we're not there yet in terms of more perfect union. I think when we look at all the activity, you know, Black Lives Matter has been organized for a long time, Poor People's Campaign a long time, Sunrise Movement for a long time. All of these groups have been pushing a new consciousness. And then you have this, this COVID and the deaths and the fact that they were caught on camera. All of those things together have pushed folk to a moment to say, listen, there needs to be a major restructuring uh, of our society, uh, whether it's dealing with racism, whether it's dealing with poverty, right. whether it's dealing with voting rights. And I hope that politicians particularly will recognize what this is. It is, this is not a time to tinker around the edges. This is not a time for just little ticker reform. This is a time for reconstruction, dealing with things that should have been dealt with a long time ago, and reordering of society. And we're going to have to be very focused in this moment. And one of the things we have to make sure in this moment is that the ask is not too small and the focus is not too little. What I mean mm -hmm. by that is... The focus on George Floyd's death, the focus on Rashad's death, the focus on Brianna's death, the focus on Brother Avery's death, all of those are focused on death, death by police, i.e. death by the state. But we also have to broaden that and say that that's not the only death that's going on in society. That's not the only thing that's killing black people. So we're going to have to put a death measurement on how many black folk died from COVID that didn't have to die? How many people are dying for the lack of health care? How many people are dying from poverty? How many people, black people, people of color, and even our white allies? Because that's where reconstruction happens, when people begin to see there's something fundamentally wrong, uh, you know, with the society. And, and by the way, Roland, you know, with, with all of this upheaval starts, you know that the Declaration of Independence says when there has been a long train of abuse. The people are supposed to alter the government. That's actually what the Declaration of Independence says. I, I want to read this, Reverend, because I think it applies to what you're doing this weekend and this whole conversation. This is the speech that Dr. King gave on the Montgomery steps after the Selma to Montgomery march. Everybody talks about Bloody Sunday. Everybody talks about the march from Selma to Montgomery. But this is what he said, and I've never forgotten this because the media plays a role in this. Dr. King said, quote, toward the end of the Reconstruction era, something very significant happened. That is what was known as the populist movement. The leaders mm -hmm. of this movement began awakening the poor white masses and the former Negro slaves to the fact that they were being fleeced by the emerging bourbon interests. Not only yep. that, but they began uniting the Negro and white masses into a voting block that threatened to drive the bourbon interest from the command post of political power in the South. 
To meet this threat, the Southern aristocracy began immediately to engineer this development of a segregated society. I want you to follow me through here because this is very important to see the roots of racism and the denial of the right to vote. Through their control of mass media, they revised the doctrine of white supremacy. They saturated the thinking of the poor white masses with it, thus clouding their minds to the real issue involved in the populist movement. They then directed the placement of the books on the books of the South of laws that made it a crime for Negroes and whites to come together as equals at any level. And that did it. That crippled and eventually destroyed the populist movement of the 19th century. What you and others are doing with the Poor People's Campaign is trying to get to those poor white folks, those poor Latinos, poor African Americans, poor Asians, poor Native Americans, and say, is a lot more of us than the rich bourbon interest, the National Chamber of Commerce interest, the folks who Donald Trump allowed to get $600 billion of PPP money, and they won't tell us where the money went. But people have got to understand that it's not going to happen if they sit on the sidelines. That's what the king said. You're being fleeced by the same interest. You, you, he's talking about the media. Well, what does Trump represent in the Commonwealth? They have the media. He said the laws they put on the books will look at their, how they're doing with voter suppression. And it is because of what? The fear of a new voting block. We've done a study that shows that if 15% of black, white, brown, uh, uh, native, and, and, and all the poor and low-wealth people would register to vote around an agenda, they could fundamentally change the political calculus all over this country. It's, the empirical data is there. But what we have to have is the, is the mobilization and organization. So where did Dr. King go after Mount Vernon? He went it. He started the Poor People's Campaign in 67. He went into the mountains of Appalachia. He went into the mountains of North Carolina. He went to the Delta, Mississippi. He understood that even when you deal with racism, you have to get it to where you have not just black folk dealing with racism, but white people and others. So he said three of them, racism, militarism, and, and poverty. We say today racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and the false bar narrative of white evangelicalism. And we're beginning to see people coming together. On June 20, 2020, at 10 o'clock a.m., on every uh, on MSNBC and ABC is not going to run it on their, on their um, uh, online and many other platforms, you will see thousands, thousands of people are coming on, hundreds of thousands, actually. But on that day, you're going to see black people from Mississippi stand with coal miners from Kentucky who have found out they're being fleeced by the same interests and they need to come together. And we have to have that kind of populist reconstruction movement in this moment. That is why it's so critical that one thing I've said to the media is stop saying we've never seen black and white folk come together like we're seeing today. It, it happened in Reconstruction, not at the same level because we didn't have social media. It happened in the Civil Rights Movement. It was happening in 68. That's why Dr. King was shot. But more importantly, we must look at not just that it's, 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 it's just folk in the streets together, and it is about police violence, but it's also about something bigger. It's about people being able to come together and form a new political bloc, and if they do that, they can change the laws that deal with the police violence. They can change the laws 
that deal with health care and living wages and the things that make people's lives better if we put them in place. And, 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 and Roland, this is the last thing. The forces like Trump and McConnell and Bannon and Steve Miller and all of those folks would not be fighting so hard if they did not feel like this coalition would work. I never told you this on this show, Mo, and I'm going to tell you tonight. When we started the poor, uh, the mass poor, uh, moral march, uh, we call it the We Must Do More Tour, mobilizing, organizing, registering, educating people for the movement who vote, headed toward June 2020 before, you know, COVID stopped us because we had planned to have hundreds of thousands of people on, the, on Pennsylvania Avenue. Our first stop was El Paso. They asked us to come there. We had black and white and brown and red in El Paso. And it was a powerful organization. When we went, when we planned to go there, I got a message, a crazy message that said, if you come here, we're going to make sure you choke on your own vomit, on your own blood. But I actually knew that if somebody was that crazy to send that, they knew, they, they recognized the power of this block down. And, and Dr. King was shot and others were killed to stop this block. But today, we have the possibility of building, and which is also why, and I shared this with you on occasion, we did a little something different with the Poor People's Campaign this time. Instead of just trying to bring people to D.C. to stay forever until things happen, we formed state organizations, state committees. So we have permanent organized committees. So you could take out somebody, but you can't take out the whole movement. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Organizing. We focused on voting rights. We've done the data, not, I mean, voter participation and the numbers. We put together a budget. We put together an agenda. And Saturday is about putting a face on it. So if people can see it's black and white, it's brown, it's native, all coming together, recognize they've been fleeced by the same bourbon, economic, greedy interests. But as you said, there are more of us than there are of them. Now, if just, if just 15% of the 140 million poor and low-wealth people will organize and come together around an agenda. It changes everything politically in this country, and especially in the South. PoorPeople'sCampaign.org. Folks, sign up uh, 10 a.m. on Saturday. Uh, we'll be live streaming it as well. Reverend Barber, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Doc. God bless. Well, thank you. I want to go back to my panel here uh, with Avis and Michael. And... Um, you know, I, I want to, you know, you, you got some people sitting here running their mouths on YouTube saying, oh, the hell with poor whites, it needs to be all black. L let me be real clear, Avis, okay? And I'm not, I have no illusions. Corporate America and politicians are responding this quickly to the protests in the street because they're seeing white people. We know. We heard it from SNCC leaders. That was one of the deals. Oh, y'all, don't, don't, don't be inviting these white kids down as freedom riders because if one of those white kids get killed, what's going to happen? Then, of course, critics said, well, all of a sudden, a white kid dies in the South and all the federal government's going to come flying in. Okay, yeah, because the reality is we understand this country. We understand whiteness and how whiteness is protected in America. But we better understand... And I ain't got... Let me be real clear. I got no problem with white allies in the streets uh, saying defund the police, change the funding structure. I don't have any problem inside of advertising agencies, Adidas, media companies, 
corporations all across the country where you got white allies who are challenging power along with their black uh, co-workers saying, we got to change this corporate culture. And so if a white ally is going to roll with me, I'm like, let's roll. So I think some black people out there, Avis, need to check themselves because if you actually study the movement, you've had white folks who were there. John Brown was a man of his time, but hell, he was he was an ardent opponent to slavery. And Frederick oh, Douglass, and Frederick Douglass had no problem with him as an ally. Absolutely. He was a gangster. Um, listen, here's 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 my point, here's my thought on the matter. Um this deconstructing white um, institutionalized racism should not be the sole responsibility of black people. Right. Why do we have to clean up their mess? Okay? Uh, you know, for me, it requires, and white people, quite frankly, I believe, should take even more responsibility for changing it. Why am I expected to somehow fix a problem that I didn't create? And so I think it makes sense. It makes every sense in the world uh, to make sure that white people live up to their responsibility. And some of the um, people that, that you're referring to, for example, you know, on the best end of the spectrum, you would like to see white people out in the streets and being fully anti-racist, not just not racist, like a lot of people, I'm not racist, that's the least you can be. Anti-racist, like... I want you to be right beside me. I want right. you to be my ride and die out here right with me. I, and, I need white folks checking white folks. Exactly. In rooms that we aren't in. That, you know, that is exactly what it will take. It's not only our responsibility. It's not should never be only our responsibility. And also for those spaces where we're not in, right. they need to be the ones checking their peers to say what you're doing is not right. We need to change. Michael um, Fred Hampton. Illinois Black Panther Party. Fred Hampton was organizing white people in West Virginia. There were White Panther Party members. White, there's, there's folks, if y'all are watching right now, go to YouTube, and I want you to type in Fred Hampton and White Panthers. There were, there's the video, the film, Michael, white men said, you fighting for against poverty, you fighting for resources, we're brothers. So, I mean, and so, and I, but what I say to those white allies, don't go out there uh, ignoring black protesters and black organizers uh, when it comes to how things are acting. But I, I just think that, again, people are walking around having no sense of history, and if white guys in West Virginia can align with Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party... Some of y'all fake-ass conscious folks need to shut up. Michael, well, go ahead. Have, and, and keep in mind, you don't have to recreate the wheel because it's happened in history, as you just referred. But it also happened during the labor movement and the development of the labor movement. Several African-American organizations, including the National Urban League, were linked in partnership with labor movements, which obviously were traditionally white, blue-collar workers, and African-American blue-collar workers. So we've done it before. We don't need to start from scratch. It just takes the will yep. to do it. That's all. 
If that's all, got to go to a break. We come back, we're going to tell you about today's Supreme Court decision uh, saying that uh, LGBT folks can't be fired because of their sexual orientation. But it was a law that black folks fought for that made it happen. I'll talk with the head of the human rights campaign, a brother, first in their history, who said black people, that the LGBT movement stands on the shoulders of black people. Y'all do not want to miss this conversation, plus my interview with Spike Lee. That's next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. You want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to rollermartinunfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Hey, fam, we support black-owned businesses, obviously, and so check out these headphones by Seek. Mary Spio, a sister, she is the designer, the inventor, the creator of these unbelievable great headphones, 360-degree uh, sound 4D headphones. If you do gaming, you can use these headphones. You can actually talk. There's Bluetooth as well. Unbelievable. And so they got a partnership with us, folks, and that is you have a promo code. If you buy these headphones, you get a discount. Go to Seek.com and use the promo code right there. You see it, RMVIP2020, RMVIP 2020. And so we certainly want to thank uh, Mary uh, Spiel and the folks at Seek.com. Folks, the Supreme Court handed a huge victory to the LGBTQ community today in a 63 decision that an employer who fires a worker for being gay or transgender violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which already protected people from employer sex discrimination as well as discrimination based on race, color, religion, or national origin. I talked with Alfonso David, president of the Human Rights Campaign, the first African-American to lead the largest LGBTQ civil rights organization, about what this means. Alfonso, glad to have you here, Roller Martin Unfiltered. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is obviously a huge decision by the... Here, guys, I need y'all to fix that video, please. I want to go to my panel, uh, but because we got to play this video, I want to go to my panel. Uh, Ava, uh, Michael, your thoughts about the Supreme Court decision? Conservatives, they sure thought that uh, they had this thing in the bag. Well, it's interesting. Anytime there are some of these close calls, it seems that Chief Justice Roberts seems to be taking the left side. I can't imagine anyone expected Gorsuch, though, to go with the majority. So clearly, sometimes right wins out, and that clearly that's the case in this decision. Avis. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it, it's it's good to see that the Supreme Court has, I would argue, come down on the right side of history on this one. Um, you know, it, it is it is it's good to see that. I, I'm hoping that. Um, you know, we'll continue to see some surprising decisions in the future, but I don't want to uh, bet my life on it, which is why I'm hoping that the next administration will bring in uh, Biden so that this court isn't forever lost to the conservatives. But for now, we can definitely be uh, happy with this decision. Folks, do y'all have an interview ready? Is the interview ready in the control room? Come on now, I need to get it together. Um, the thing here, Michael, is that um, when you look at this particular court, uh, obviously conservatives have the advantage here, but you're also seeing the impact 
of what happens when black folks change the laws of the country. Uh, you'll hear me discuss this with Alfonso David, that the reality is uh, the, um, the American with Disabilities Act, 1996, provision of the Civil Rights Act, 1964. Title IX, which opened the professional schools to women, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Same-sex marriage, that was Equal Protection Clause, 14th Amendment, one of the Reconstruction Acts. The reality is black sacrifice has helped numerous Americans when it comes to changing these laws. And the LGBTQ community has acknowledged that. They've said we are standing on the shoulders of some of those amendments in the 60s. And frankly, that's part of... The, actually, some of the wording in those amendments, it uses, obviously, the word discrimination. Clearly, it doesn't necessarily lay out every level of discrimination. We're going to see this challenged again, whether it's with the handicapped and the physically challenged. We're going to see this challenge all the time. And the court said, you know what? Discrimination means discrimination. And if that's the case, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's physically challenged, whether it's skin color, whatever it is, gender, we're going to side on the side of discrimination is wrong. We're going to fix it and make it right. Uh, let's go to the interview with Alfonso David, president of HRC. Alfonso, glad to have you here, Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is obviously a huge decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, something black folks fought hard to make possible. Uh, I think if you, uh, when I, I often said this here, folks with disabilities, uh, that is a provision of the law, women as well, now LGBTQ. Yes, absolutely. So today's decision from the Supreme Court affirms what we have known for 20 years that LGBTQ people are protected by federal anti-discrimination laws, and specifically Title VII, and that is what the court affirmed today. And, Roland, we all know this all too well. If you're LGBTQ and you're also a person of color, you're hit twice. And so we wanted to make sure that we advanced and protect civil rights for marginalized communities. Here, the Supreme Court is saying you are indeed protected. Federal civil rights law does protect LGBTQ people from discrimination in the workplace. Um, what is it obviously was interesting here, it was a six to three decision, wasn't five to four, uh, to have <laughs> Neil Gorsuch as well as John Roberts both writing for uh, the uh, for the majority. Uh, that has obviously outraged uh, many uh, social conservative, a lot of white conservative evangelicals, because they felt by having Neil Gorsuch in that position, the seat that Obama should have gotten for Merrick Garland, then having Brett Kavanaugh, that they were assured that they would be able to prevail uh, in these type of cases. Yes, I think many people are surprised, but um, I think we should be heartened by this decision. You have the Chief Justice and Gorsuch that are advancing the rule of law, that are respecting the rule of law. The court decision is 172 pages long, but a part of the decision that I want to highlight for purposes of this discussion is the is are certain provisions in the decision where the court says the black letter law is clear that LGBTQ people should be protected under Title VII. But in addition to that, we have all of these court decisions. We have decades and decades of court decisions that have effectively said, you are protected from discrimination based on your sexual orientation or your gender identity pursuant to the definition of sex. And they respect the stare decisis. They respect a judicial precedent. And we know from 
things that the chief justice has written, that he wants to make sure the court is respected. He respects stare decisis and judicial precedent, and that is what we have today. Well, and uh, it was interesting. I, I saw a tweet by uh, Ari Fleischer who said uh, it was boggling to his mind that folks would disagree that you can't fire somebody because uh, they're gay. And I'm going, Ari, what are you talking about? That's literally the, the argument of many uh, white conservative evangelicals and social conservatives. I mean, that's literally their argument. It's not only their argument, but that's what the the defendants in this case, the appellants, uh, argued in front of the Supreme Court. They said, we believe that employers should have the right to fire LGBTQ people from their jobs, and we, as employers, should have no liability under Title VII. That was their argument. And this is not unique, unfortunately. We, in 29 states in this country, there are no state law protections, none that protects LGBTQ people, comprehensive protections that protect LGBTQ people from discrimination. So we need to do a lot of work culturally to educate people as to why it is important that LGBTQ people are protected. But there is also a very important point. 70% or more of people in this country believe that LGBTQ people should be protected. We do have the remaining 25 or 30% that either have not opined on the question or feel differently. And so we have some work to do with those folks. But ultimately, the objective here is if I'm protected from discrimination as a gay man, it doesn't threaten you as a non-gay person in the workplace. One of the things that, again, I, I started off the top that way because, look, you're the first uh, African-American leader of HRC. And we've done numerous discussions on this show where I've had uh, brothers and sisters who are same-gender-loving uh, who have made the argument that um, there needs to be much broader equality even within the LGBT movement. And this, again, and, I, and this particular law here, it's based upon that 64 Civil Rights Act. If you go back to same-sex marriage, it goes back to the Equal Protection Clause. And so all of those things African-Americans were fighting for, it's so many others are benefiting from. Do, are you also make, you know, making the point uh, within the movement that, look, listen to the concerns of what black folks out here are saying because... They've been fighting for these issues that people are benefiting from. Oh, absolutely. The LGBTQ civil rights movement stands on the shoulders of black civil rights leaders. Let's be crystal clear. And the LGBTQ civil rights movement, in fact, was created because of black and Latinx transgender members of our community who fought against police brutality. So it is not a zero-sum game. You mean Stonewall? You mean Stonewall? In your Stonewall. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Stonewall, the Compton's cafeteria in California, those were black and brown folks who were fighting against police brutality. That's why we have the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. It wasn't because of non-black uh, people or non-Latinx people, but in fact, Latinx and black people fought against police brutality. That's why we have the modern civil rights movement for LGBTQ people. We stand on those shoulders, and we also stand on the shoulders of Martin Luther King and, and Rosa Parks and others that have been fighting against injustice. We are all operating under the same construct, the U.S. Constitution, equal protection under the law, liberty and justice for all. And those principles apply to me as a gay man. They apply to me as a black man. And 
the, the fight for justice and the fight for equality is one and all the same, but we have to remember that we stand on the shoulders of giants that came before us, many of them black and brown. I have to ask you, we're seeing what's happening in the streets. I mean, where my office is, we literally, I mean, we can step out and 50 steps, we're standing on Black Lives Matter Plaza. Uh, and uh, we're seeing what's happening all around the country. We saw this weekend massive protest uh, in, in in Brooklyn uh, where they were saying that black trans lives ma uh, matter as well. And yes. do you believe that this, what's happening in this country right now, do you believe that it is different? I saw a John Ridley article over the weekend in Dateline.com that one of the reasons you're seeing is differently is because the number of white faces, allies, who, frankly, black folks have been educating on these issues, who now are coming around and realize, oh, this really is an issue. And corporations are going, oh, my goodness, what the hell? Now you got black folks and white folks uh, aligning, and you're seeing this, 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 this reaction that I don't think we've ever witnessed this much movement in three weeks. I completely agree with you. What we are experiencing is a transformative time in our country. And the reason why it's transformative is because black people have said is enough is enough. We are not going to accept the status quo. We are going to push back against a system that was created to oppress us. And we are going to push for a system that is inclusive. And the second point that you made is, is not only black and brown people who are fighting for change. The folks that are marching also include a lot of white people that are pushing to make sure there is change. And importantly, young people who were not around for Rodney King. They were right. not alive. They, didn't, they don't remember that. But they do remember what's happening today with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. And they're saying that's not acceptable. And so that is one of the reasons why this is so different than other movements in the past. But speaking of that, one of the things I have also said is that Protests in the streets, that's one thing. But then mobilizing folks to begin to create the policy changes is another. And so as someone who leads uh, the largest LGBT organization in the country, what are you telling people who are watching what's happening, who may be speaking up in corporations, to ensure that this thing doesn't peter out in three or four months or in six months, that really what we should be thinking about this as a moment as if this is a third reconstruction, where you had the first reconstruction from 1865 to 1877, that second reconstruction from 1955 to 1968, and that this is the third reconstruction. Yeah, first, what I've been saying is, to your point, peaceful protesting is certainly essential for change, but we also need voting. We need to make sure our voices are heard at the ballot box. And what we're seeing in certain states, Georgia is one example, Wisconsin is another, the rights of marginalized communities and minority communities have been suppressed. So we have to fight back to make sure our voices are heard at the ballot box. We have to make sure that we have options that are available to us in addition to in-person voting. That's first. Second, we do have to make sure that we support policy changes. It's nice to see, you know, companies that are saying we support Black Lives Matter, but we want to make sure that they're also supporting policies that are supportive of the minority of minority communities and LGBTQ community. And it just having a statement saying we support Black Lives Matter is certainly welcomed. But we want to make sure they're supporting policy. We want to make sure they are signing on to amicus briefs. And many companies are doing this, but we want to make sure all of them are in fact doing this. 
because it's not only going to make, we're not going to only have change because of peaceful protesting. Peaceful protesting, policy changes, and voting equals change. And they all and work we, hand in hand. So one is not more important than the other, but you need all pieces. You need all pieces because otherwise we will all be taken for granted. And I say to the young people who uh, are still struggling, uh, maybe this is the first time that they've ever voted. If you vote and you vote for the mayor and you vote for the city council, you actually get to influence who the police chief is going to be. You get to influence what the budgets are for the police departments because the mayor in most cases appoints the police chief. The city council in most cases approves their budgets. So we have to really make sure our voices are heard in order for us to have significant and meaningful policy changes moving forward. Alfonso David, President, Human Rights Campaign. We surely appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Folks, Spike Lee's new Netflix film, The Five Bloods, premiered Friday on Netflix. Of course, it tells the story of black soldiers and what they endured during the Vietnam era. It stars Delroy Lindo, Isaiah Whitlock, Clark Peters, and Norm Lewis. Here's my conversation with the great Spike Lee. All right, let's see. We can... All right, folks, just going to interrupt that it, it deal. So Jordan Charlton just, Charlton just tweeted this. Update at press conference, Los Angeles County Sheriff's retract the conclusion that Robert Fuller, a 24-year-old black man found hung by a tree in Palmdale on June 10th, killed himself. He writes, no answer for why they claim it a suicide in the first place. Homicide now investigating. And so again, breaking news, Jordan Cheriton tweeted, update at press conference, L.A. County Sheriff's retract conclusion that Robert Fuller, 24-year-old black man found hung by a tree in Palmdale on June 10th, killed himself. No answer for why they claim it a suicide in the first place. Homicide now investigating. And we certainly will keep you abreast uh, of those details tomorrow on Rollerbot Unfiltered. Let's go back to the Spike Lee interview. Always glad to have Spike Lee on Roller Martin Unfiltered. What's up, my man? How are you doing, sir? Man, I'm great. Uh, let's. I want to talk about... We're gonna, obviously, we're going to talk about the movie. But this moment that we are in is really, as I'm looking at history, I'm, I'm looking at these companies responding, police departments, you got Andrew Cuomo saying, if y'all don't do reforms, we're going to pull the money. I mean, George Floyd's death, nearly, murder, nearly three weeks ago, has moved folks. That I've never seen in my 51 years, Spike, stuff move this fast. I've never seen move this fast. Never seen it. Is this the Reconstruction? Is this the third Reconstruction? Should we be approaching this like the Reconstruction era? To be honest, I never thought about that till you mentioned it today, and you're absolutely right. And I think that it speaks to the power of the image as the world saw the last eight-plus minutes of our brother's life, our brother, King George Floyd. This horrific graphic imagery where he was saying, I can't breathe. And I know in my heart, he saw that footage with Eric Gardner. And I believe that in his last moments, when he's calling out for his mama, 
he saw his mother. She was there. It was saying, come on, baby. It's going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Be all right. And now they are laid. Now he's laid to rest next to her. She had been de- deceased, I think, two years. So his people know him, his name, all over the world. And people all over the world have taken to the streets. People who aren't black, people who aren't black or people aren't brown. Chanting, yelling his name. And we are in a very special moment. I'm a little older than you, my brother. So I was 10 years old in 67, 11 and 68. So I saw the turmoil mm-hmm. that was happening in this country. A lot of it having to do with the anti-war movement. So we're in the people, historians, we were right up this time, we live in forever. We're, we're dealing with two pandemics. The one pandemic that started in 1619 when the first at Jamestown, Virginia, and the pandemic of present day, as they call in the hood, that 19. Yeah. That road. And, and it's uh, back to back on top of each other, has in good ways and bad ways changed the world we live. BC before before Corona. And the reason you have to link these is because what coronavirus show, which we knew, but showed everybody else. We knew already. Yeah, we, we, we had not knew. Right. We we knew the underlying conditions. We knew what caused it. We knew whether it was asthma, whether it was all the other diseases. Then we knew about police reform, but the the both pandemic all of a sudden now caused everybody else to go. Oh my God. And now they can't say we didn't know. It's, it's so stark. It's no different than the fire hoses and the dogs in Selma and in Birmingham. It's no different Bull than Connor. Bull Connor. It's no difference than uh, today. Today being, of course, uh, the anniversary of the commemoration uh, of, the, of the assassination of Megger Evers. It's no different than 16th Street. Amer- white folks have to see it and they can't run from it. True. And thank you for reminding me about today being when our brother Mecca was killed, like many of our soldiers in the civil rights movement. I'm going to put, post something on my uh, Instagram. Thank you for telling me that, sir. This is, this, and the reason I think all of this, in the film that you've done, The Five Bloods, what I really appreciate is that you didn't and again, I'm, as I'm thinking about also how Black Klansmen, how you connected past with present. Mm. So many people, I think, when they watch this film, will go, I had no clue about these Black soldiers. But also, you're telling this story of these brothers who are going to fight for a country with a flag on their, with a flag on their, uh, on their uniform while their fellow brothers and sisters are at home try- fighting to be free. So how in the hell can you be a black soldier trying to free the folks in Vietnam, but in the very place where you came from, you're not free? Black GI, in Memphis, Tennessee, 
a white man assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King also opposed the U.S. war in Vietnam. Black GI, your government sent 600,000 troops to crush the rebellion. Your sole sister and sole brothers are enraged in over 122 cities. They killed them. Why you fight against us? So far away from where you are needed. Well, that has been a dilemma that we have had from the beginning. My brother, as you know, the first person to die for this country was our brother, Christmas Attucks, who died at the Boston Massacre and the Revolutionary War. So we have died from this country from the beginning. And I would say no one has been more patriotic than us. If you take into account what we've gone through. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we just like you said, we fight for a country. We 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 love our country and we fight for this country from day one. And our country does not love us back. And here we are in 2020, where I think there's been a pivotal change. And uh, I think one this is very important, Roland, is that all the momentum we have now, we have to keep this going to November 3rd. November 3rd. But here's, but here's, but here's why I'm using Reconstruction. Okay. I'm, Break it down. Break I'm, it down. I'm, I'm using Reconstruction because the period of Reconstruction during the 1800s was 12 to 14 years, 1865 to 1877. The third the second Reconstruction, now, uh, uh, Manny Marable has it from 1945 to 2006, but I'm going to limit it to the Black Freedom Movement, 1955, King's Assassination, 1968, the passing of the Fair Housing Act. That's 13 years. What I want to argue to our people, I don't want us to be thinking that this is a six-month thing or a year thing. This is where we're like, no. We know right now, if you read W.E.B. DuBois' book on the Black and Reconstruction, he details where it failed. Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction details where it failed. Manny Marable, Reverend Dr. Barber has his book called The Third Reconstruction. We must look at the first two and go, we have to complete where those two failed and it has to be, if it's 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, we have to be thinking that way, not short-term. What you're saying, we got to think about the long game, baby. The long game, not the short game. Not taking no shorts. Because the short game is in the long game. No, okay. Six months is a part of 20 years. So we're going to be like the 49ers, going to have the old 49ers <laughs> on the Bill Walsh. We're going to be a passing game and a running game. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and the reason I think that that's, that's critical, because, look, you have been fighting. You've been fighting this thing in Hollywood your entire career. What I'm saying right now, black employees at Adidas rose up. In 48 hours, they announced... $100 million, the next 50, 30, 50% of new hires will be black and Latinx. 600 black people in the advertising agency. Open letter. 
Black folks on Broadway uh, are hitting that whole deal. Other companies, I keep saying, because I got a call, somebody's like, well, Roland, you vice president digital for the National Association, National Association of Black Journalists. NABJ, I said, stop. No, we need black employees at ABC, at NBC, at CBS, at MSNBC. And Studios. At, right, we need black employees rising up, rebellions internally, holding, saying to the companies, this is what we've experienced, what we've gone through, lack of promotions, the racism, discrimination. Y'all got to change. And we're seeing what happened. Second City CEO quit because he, did, he, he admitted, I didn't handle racism. Philadelphia newspaper editor resigns after running that uh, article, all buildings up. Uh, New York Times editorial page editor resigned after running Senator Tom Cotton deal. The Refinery29 co-founder resigned because of that. Anna Wintour apologizing for her behavior and saying we haven't done enough uh, to, to increase blacks. Bon Appetit editor quits because of allegations of racism. All of that happened because black employees inside spoke up. So what I'm saying is if you black at one of these companies in, in the industry and if you scared, this is the moment where you got to have some damn courage. Step up, baby. Step up. Come on. Roland, come on, man. Don't stop. Keep it going, baby. No, Keep no, going. no. I want to give you an yeah, opportunity. I, no, this yeah. is me interviewing you. I want to give you an opportunity to say so. You're schooling me. I'm listening. I'm being educated. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, you know, I, I, I had not thought of this in the re as a resurrection. You, I did not thought of that. Thank you. This is it. This, this is, is it. A, you got to send me, you got to email me those books I got to read to. On my Instagram page. I, po I posted them last night. I posted all but four covers. Email, I'll, email no, I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> if we think that way, then it's because reconstruction means we are reconstructing the nation. We're recon So I need us to reconstruct Hollywood, reconstruct news media, reconstruct athletic apparel companies, reconstruct corporate America. Man, I'm telling you, I, I said to the Executive Leadership Council, uh, hey, y'all, 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 the biggest, y'all, y'all, the black corporate organization. You should be saying to these companies, and I'm telling you right now, I'm gonna put it out there, and I know I told my man with, with, with NABJ, YouTube just announced a hundred million dollar fund for black content creators. I said to our folks, no, we should be saying to the industry, we want a billion dollar fund for black black media entrepreneurs. Verizon, contribute. AT and T, contribute. Comcast has already announced 100 million? No, add 150 million. Because you don't, this is not to me, a, 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 this is not charity, it's not a donation, it is, it is an investment. This is reconstruction. Unless you That's deal with that. I have a question for you, sir. Yep, yep. If you see this, is there a difference between the two all words, reconstruction and reparations? No, no, no. I, hold on, no, no. I would, I, I would answer it, but I don't want them to know the answer. So start again, start again. You froze right there. I said I would answer it, but I don't want them to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's gonna be offline discussion. Oh yeah, huh? oh yeah. Because again, I know how folk respond to one of the R words. But the other R word, we've actually done it twice. So you can't tell me we can't do it again, because I can say the first one, we got 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, 
15th Amendment, two different civil rights acts in those periods. We can show you the expansion, how many black schools were open. African-American, uh, I was reading last night, 257 black schools were open in North Carolina alone. In one 10-year period, 1,200 black newspapers were launched in a decade period, and that was with a black illiteracy rate of 80-plus percent. Mm. So you have this period, the Freedmen's Bureau, all those things were created during a period of Reconstruction. I need us to be thinking 10, 12, 15, 20 years and say this is the moment, because, Spike, we've never seen... They t they're taking down King Leopold's statues in Belgium. They're not. And what just... about that slave owner in England? They yeah. took that statue down, threw it in the river. No, they said they, they said they said the statue stripped. <laughs> the statue tripped and just fell into the water. <laughs> but again, what you're saying that's is that British, that's that British humor. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is, and I'm gonna see you in the interview. I interviewed my man. Uh, I'm gonna see you in this book as well, um, Dr. Gerald Horn, whose book is on white supremacy, anti-colonialism in Africa as well. And that's what we're seeing. What we're now seeing, Spike, is globally folks are saying, wait a minute, George Floyd's murder has now provoked a discussion on white supremacy. This ain't just police. This is now the system. That, to me, I think, is how we have to be seeing this and, and be laser-like focusing, this is the moment. Does any moment you black working for a company where you can say something and not get fired is right now. But you got to have courage. Got to have courage. Let me ask you another question. Yes, sir. This is something I'm starting to get into. Post-slavery traumatic stress. Yes. Yes. What you laid out in, what you laid out in the five bloods, no, that is real. I just saw a video today of a young black girl. She was walking. A cop pulls up. A white female cop pulls up. The young black girl immediately starts shaking and crying. And all the cop wanted to do was to greet her and say, young lady, how you doing? It's good to see you. And then she started consoling her. The issue there is that this girl when she saw a police car and it stopped, that little girl is thinking George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. She's thinking, um, uh, she's thinking John Crawford III. She's thinking Eric Garner. Yeah, all of that, all of that is tied to it. It's no different than we got to go in. Oh, hold up, we got to modulate. No, let me take the bass out my voice. Let me turn the treble up. I got all of that. We have to carry that stuff around every day. White folks get to be free. Trump. White folks get Trauma. to cuss folks out, do stuff, do whatever. Tucker Carlson gets to say what the hell he wants on Fox and Sean Handy and Laura Ingram. And I was told when I was at CNN by Ken Jowles, executive vice president, when I used the word bruh to Barack Obama, said, be careful, we don't want to scare the white folks away. That was in 2007. That actually happened. So imagine now I'm at CNN for two months. What now? I now got to watch everything I say because you literally are saying to me, and they said to me, I also showed my wife the interview and she agreed. Ooh, the white wife agreed. But that's what I'm talking about. We have to, we, 
This is this is this is the black person in corporate America in America. I, I gotta, I gotta, no, because we, we we are we're, sad, sad but true. Right. We, this, I'm a, this is this, this is white people in America. I, I I can do my thing. I can do whatever. We are tight. We're wound. That's that stress. That's that pressure. And it's on us. And that's why I don't think other people have any understanding. And you you seen it you've seen it in Hollywood. You've had those conversations with brothers and sisters. They like Spike. I wish I could say what you say, man. Yeah, I mean, corporate America is no joke. Yeah, it's real. It's real, Doc. So here's what I absolutely love about the Five Bloods. I've said this to Clark Peters. I've said to Daryl Lindo. I've said to Norm uh, Lewis. I can't wait to interview Isaiah Whitlock. This is a movie that's about black brotherhood. That brotherhood really came through in, when I watched this movie. Is that what you wanted to achieve? To, to show black brotherhood, that all of those elements of brotherhood. I see ghosts, y'all. I see ghosts. What happens uh, to all of us, man? Have you seen them too? Yeah. Uh. Dad come to you at night. Huh? Storm and Norm come to me down there every night. Now he talk to you like he talked to me. Come on. Come I don't on. think so. Come on. Fish up. Get in there, David. Get in there. Put your fist up, David. Come on. Go on, you too, Van. Go ahead. Fist up, man. Come on, Paul. Yes, I wanted to show the brotherhood, which we don't see a lot, like black men being open, being vulnerable, and loving one and each other. And also, it's amplified when you have people, brothers, bloods, a term of endearment that the black Vietnam soldiers called each other bloods. Mm -hmm. When you're in a war, when you're in a battle, and you gotta look to you gotta look to the left and look to the right. And those are people you're depending to keep you alive and they depend on you to keep them alive. A, a bond is formed. A foundation. So uh we wanted to and I think we were very successful in, in just demonstrating that. I, I said something to Dale Roy, and he said, man, I have never heard that in any of these interviews. I said to him, I, I love, I love the, the, all, all, the, the hand, all the dapping, the hand signals, and the, and the, and the how, and how. No in Vietnam, by the brothers. That dap, they brought it back to the, the States, mm -hmm. but it was formed in Vietnam. What I loved about it, and again, I tell my audience, I might look at movies a little bit differently than other people. When the scene where... The world different than other people. <laughs> the scene where they all had to... And I love it. I love it for that. Yes, sir. They all had to put their hands in the center. Disagreement, whatever, you got to come back. I said they were forced to. And Dale Roy said, well, no, I don't say forced. I said, no, no, no. Here's why I use the word forced. Because, again, as somebody as a life member of Alpha Phi Alpha, there's a brotherhood. I said, there is, there is a force that is unseen 
that no matter what happens, brings them back to that point that we might disagree and yell, holler, scream, cuss, fight, but you got to put that hand back and say, don't ever lose this. And he was like, oh, now I see what, what? you're saying. That, that was... And, yep. and, and I think that's a great analogy talking about the bond and the love that one gets from black fraternities and black sororities too. Yeah, it, it, fine. it's the collective. It, I mean, it is, it is, it is the collective. And I think for this, this was older black men. Now we've had movies like The Wood Brothers. We've had other movies where you know, Juice, younger black men, they're a group, they're a posse. But I was sitting here watching it, and I'm seeing older black men who, who are connecting and afraid to share. But then when they do share, that brother's like, yo, dog, we here for you. So the norm, I, I don't want to give up, but the norm character, and then the Delroy character and what he's going through. And then all, like, all those pieces, I mean, I was watching, and I was like, yo, I said, you, are, you do not see a lot of black male love and affection, even to the city, and uh, nah, tell me if I'm wrong or not, even how they hugged each other in the movie. They didn't sit here and just the handshake and just, you know, the hand, the arm, in, no, no, no. Full embracing. That's a different level of intimacy than just th that sort of hug. What you talked about is what we want to convey. Again, these men were teenagers, went to Vietnam, flown halfway around the world to fight in the Moral War, the Vietnam War. They were lucky to come back. But people come back from wars damaged, wars held. And what's specific about the Vietnam War versus World War I, World War, I, World War II, and others, where they were people greeted on the return, the Vietnam soldiers, black, white, brown, whoever, they were called baby killers. They were spat upon and just discarded. So that had not happened with other servicemen returning for World War I, World War II. And the Korean War. What also I thought was just really fascinating, because when I, you know, when you won the Oscar, I remember you posted a photo the next day of flying out to shoot this movie. Yeah, I went to. Uh, I was on the next morning. I was on the flight yeah. to Bangkok, Thailand. The next morning. And I remember you you telling me about it, and then I'm reading all this sort of stuff. And so I'm going, okay, so you got, you know, these brothers served in Vietnam. But I really thought it was amazing adding the son of the Delroy Lindo character. Because to me, that brother represented that generation who completely misunderstood and had no idea what the war did to their dad. And he need and, and by him going back, he saw it and felt it and then understood what all that pain was in the, in, in the preceding, what, some 30-plus years. You on fire today, huh? No, I told you, I watched the movie. 
And it was funny too, man, because I had to keep putting the code in and it wasn't working. And I was emailing, I was like, yo, I put the movie on pause. I had to come back. I couldn't pull it up. I was like, I'm finished watching. I think, I think it's a two hour and 35 minute movie. I think it took me four hours to watch because I was like, no, I'm going, I'm not coming back in the morning, y'all. And so it got fixed. But I bet they were like, if he's seeing one more email tonight about this code, <laughs> I'm like, no, because it, it was just, I mean, that's to me, that, that connection, it just spoke volumes why that, that young brother need to be in there. And it, it, just, it just spoke volumes. And another thing, though, I like to add is that this has been a, a current theme in my films, that father-son relationship. Go back to He Got Game. Mm, mm. Jake, Jesus and Jake Shuttlesworth. Mm. And, and no disrespect to the, the, the mother-daughter relationship we did we touched upon a lot in Crooklyn. Yep, yep. But that father-son thing, complex. Yeah. And rarely seen when you look at uh we look at a lot of these movies. Only did it's the only other issue that, that I, I had a problem with. Dog, I was sweating my ass off watching the movie. How hot was it? <laughs> I well, watched, I'm in my living room with the AC on, like, why am I sweating? <laughs> Them brothers were, which, they were glistening. I grew up, first of all, I grew up in Houston, so I know heat. So I'm, I'm watching like, oh, hell, this is Houston in August. Houston? I'm born and raised in Houston. August, it hit 100, 100. In Houston, ain't got nothing on that Thailand, <laughs> Vietnam, brother. When I, the, I told you already. When, when I, the morning after winning the Oscar, I was on my plane to Bangkok. Uh huh. When I got off that plane, that heat hit me upside the head. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> and we were shooting the jungle. Yeah. And there was, there was no need for makeup people going around and spraying people with the water bottle. <laughs> that was real, 100% funky, smelly sweat. <laughs> Every day was over 100 degrees. Man. And y'all were in the, y'all were in the jungle. The Hollywood back lot. Y'all were in the jungle. It was hot AF. <laughs> <laughs> It's all right. This show, Rolling Martin Unfiltered. Ain't no thing. You ain't, you ain't got a censor. Uh, <laughs> man, it was... Okay, now, I, now, when I first... Okay, so when I see the first time I see the flashback scenes with Chadwick, and I don't see young actors playing the older actors. And at first, I was like, what? I ain't never... I'm like... I ain't never seen this, but as I as, as the scene kept unfolding, and I went, oh, so what Spike wanted to do was put the older brothers back in time, but their memory as their right. That's what I, because that's what I mean. So I, I thought that was just a great, because rarely do you see that. No well, one. Let me give you the. Let me give you the reasons, very pragmatic. Netflix 
was the last place I can go to get this film made. Mm. All the places studios have turned it down. And we had a budget. This film had to be done for a budget. And to add $100 million for special effects to de-age our middle-aged actors was not going to make it. Right. And then, in what you just stated, I've rarely seen a film where that works when they cast uh, the younger versions of the stars in the film. Right. And also, as we were just talking about the heat, any prosthetic makeup would have melted off their face with that 100-degree heat. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, and, I, and the last thing is that I respect the, the intelligence of the audience, and they would get what I was trying to say. As, as I know it might have been a lot of maybe a little jarring at the beginning, but you got through it, right, and you explained, right, right. You explained exactly my thought process. No, that, that was it, because I went, well, uh, where the young guys? Then I went, that, and then as I kept watching the scene, and then I went, probably when we came back the second time, I went, mm -hmm. oh. Because, 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 the, because the trip, the trip was all about going back. And the trip was well, these... Having these middle-aged men who were like 56 years old, and they're going back in a time where they were teenagers. Yeah. Shipped across the world to kill people who they had nothing against. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was, and that was, um, uh, it, it really, it, it really stood out. And, and but I, I'll tell you, man, I've, I've said this. Uh, I always wanted to interview Dale Rolando. I, I, I have said numerous times that the two actors who I absolutely believe should be beyond huge in terms of leading roles who are incredible, Dale Rolando, Jeffrey Wright. Mm -hmm. and, and to see Dale Roy have, have this role, and the intensity and what he brought out when it came to PTSD was it, it was just riveting to watch that emotional roller coaster. And I'm glad you 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 talked about Delroy because he's one of the greatest actors working. And I hope and prayer, I hope and pray, excuse me, that he gets the light, the shine, and the claim he so truly deserves because he's been putting in work yeah. for a year. Not like he just, he just showed up. He's been putting work from the get. Yeah. And we have a relationship. Yeah. Boy played Wesley and Archie. Oh, man. In Mount played my father, my real-life father in Crooklyn. Clockers. Played the drug, the drug kingpin in Clockers. So, great, great performance. And, and, and the thing of that, this is some. The, his, he's so tragic. Yeah. In this, I mean, you you look at him, it's like this is an individual who has never got one break the entire life. Mm -hmm. Ever. But he wasn't happy that you made him wear a certain hat. <laughs> <laughs> I read an interview. He was like, "Spike, 
you going to do this to me? <laughs> you going to do this to me? I don't want to tell people. But oh, it's, it's out already. It's all right, out already. Right. So you made Delroy wear a Make America Great Again hat. He was a Trump supporter. Why, why were you so insistent? And he told, he told the story why you like, no, I got to do this. Why were you so insistent that that character had to serve that purpose, serve that role? My co-writer and I knew that despite the bond that these guys have that was formed in the jungles of Vietnam, when they got back, everybody went their separate ways. So they had to come back 40, 40 plus years later and be like what my mother warned me about at a very early age that all black people, and we are not one monolithic group. We don't all think alike, talk alike, look alike, et cetera, et cetera. So Kevin and I, Kevin, Kevin and I, Kevin Wilmot, my co-writer, we, we, we said, what is the most extreme thing we could introduce to one of these characters. And it didn't take long. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, it, yeah. So, the, the great Delroy Lindo, his character, Paul, is someone, is one of these small percentage of black men who have drunk the orange Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. Did you notice that all five bloods are the first name of the tempting temptations? No. That slipped by? That one? I didn't see that one. See, you were you bad 100, you were bad <laughs> 1,000. <laughs> and I just slipped a big, fat 100 mile per hour Nolan Ryan. Wow. Fastball right down <laughs> the plate, and you didn't get it. I did not. Wow. No, I did not pick up on that one. Did not pick up fact, on that one. Let me tell you something. The other day, Otis Williams is trying to call me. Mm. The, day, the day before that. Wow. Wow. I didn't. I did not pick up on that and, one. And this is the only living. Yes, he's the last river. temptation. He's the last and so temptation. As soon as I hang with you, I'm calling my brother because he reached out to me to say thank you for the love. Wow. That... Oh, another thing left out. One of the greatest albums ever made. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Now, hold up, hold up. I, I missed that one, because, see, that was one of my next questions. Oh, uh, yeah, that was no, Negro, no, that was no, 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 here's the deal, because as I, all throughout the movie, you're hearing Marvin. Most movies, you have multiple artists. You chose to make, Marvin Gaye is the soundtrack right. of this movie. He's a voice in the movie. Th there were other, there were other artists who were doing songs that match the time. Why did you say no, no, no? Only Marvin. Marvin Gaye is one of the greatest artists of all time, and Marvin had a brother, an older brother named Franklin, 
who did three tours in Vietnam. Wow. And he was a raid operator. And Franklin write his brother, Marvin, and in those letters, he was describing the horrors of Vietnam. And also, Marvin was seeing the brothers come back from Vietnam to Motown, to Detroit, and the terrible shape they were in. I mean, the song Inner City Blues, you know, that that's makes me want to holler. That's that's told from the perspective of a black Vietnam vet coming home. Mm-hmm. And I feel those two things really gave with the impetus, the inspiration for one of the greatest albums ever. So I knew right away I wanted to have Marvin Gaye's songs. The one that was haunting. And also, Go ahead. the al- yeah. album came out in 71. So this is an album that the brothers listened to Vietnam anyway. Right, right, right. What was haunting was to hear that acapella version at the end. You never heard that before, right? No music. Like that. Nope, no music. No. Acapella version of, of what's going on. Just his voice. That's it. That beautiful voice. Yeah, that was, that was, I mean, because, and it was just like, hold up, Marvin. And then, of course, because, you know, first of all, my, going back, Mary Waits, who was my, uh, I went to school of communications high school. Uh, she made us, when we watched movies, she made us watch the credits because she said that's who actually makes the movie. And so, ever since then, that was 10th grade. Your teacher told you that? Yeah. Mary Waits was my television instructor, 10th, 11th grade. And whenever we watched movies in our television class, she said, yeah. you have to, she said, y'all, would cook. She, we will have a turn. She said, no, no, you have to watch till the credits end. She said, because that's who made the movie. So I always watch credits. I, I never leave a movie theater. I never, like, in fact, I, I was, I, I tweeted one day, I was sort of mad at Netflix and they actually changed it. Well, they used to quickly, like when a, when a movie's over, like eight, like five seconds, they would go like, hey, 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 we need the option to see the, um, and that was, it's always my deal. So watching it and your deal was like, Music by Marvin Gaye. Normally with a movie, you see all these names, the writer, all the, you like, music by Marvin Gaye. Had to give it up. That's it. That's it. No pun intended. Black Klansman, again, you connected past to present, Malcolm X, past to present, to have Nelson Mandela and the children. Uh, I am Malcolm X. That. The connection to Black Lives Matter was also powerful because that Chadwick character, solid, and then connecting to today's movement, uh, also spoke volumes. Well, a lot of, not a lot, but some people said, Spike, that Black Lives Matter scene, did you just shoot that and then slip it in? The truth is, that was the very first scene we shot. Mm. At my mother's grave, that was the very first scene we shot. It, it, it mattered, because I think, and the reason, I'm again, as watching it, because I'm seeing, and, and how you use film, and how you use King's speech at Riverside Church on April 3rd, 1967, and you emphasize, which one of the things I've always done, to the day, 
a year later to the day after after that speech. And I, I make a distinction all the time. I, I make it clear. There is no coincidence that he was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, after the speech he gave on April 4th, 1967. But again... And, 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 and can I just... Yeah, yeah. And I want to say something to your audience, but you, you notice, as long as Dr. King was just talking about can we all live together? I have a dream. We should all sit down and eat the same counters. You know, that was all right. But when he came out against the war, boom, he talking about money. Precisely. Money and power. Yep. Money and power. And then another thing that we have to recognize, LBJ thought he had a friend with Dr. King with the Civil Rights Act yep. of 1964. LBJ, when Dr. King stepped out, felt like he had been betrayed. Black people, dog, Dr. King. King Black people. Talking about how immoral the war is. That's when they said, he got to go. Black people. Roy Wilkins, NAACP, Whitney Young, National Urban League, Carl Rowan. I mean, King was vilified and attacked. And so seeing that, I just thought was so important because you watch these films, when you watch these Vietnam films, when you watch Apocalypse Now, when you watch, you know, all, all these other different films, you're watching a, a Vietnam film, you're seeing the jungle, you're seeing the fighting, but for, for the, again, for these black soldiers, it, there were two wars that were going on. And folks today have to, I, just, they had to be hit between the eyes to say, no, we ain't just talking about them going back to Vietnam. No, that war was at home. And so seeing those clips and seeing the, uh, the, the, the newsreels and linking Muhammad Ali and putting all those things, you know, weaving all of this in tells a story that, and then, of course, with the Black Lives Matter, pulling it all together by saying, if you think that war ended, this war for black people continues. And Black Lives Matter, those are the new I soldiers in the war. Where they say, you know, wars never end. They don't. And our struggle, and I was just looking at, I was looking at a Juneteenth shirt, and somebody said, I was looking at a Juneteenth shirt, and I saw this design, and it said, uh, breaking chains since 1865. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Yes, sir about this guy, Agent Orange, having all this stuff on Juneteenth and in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Does he really think that that's going to get him black votes? Oh, no, no. That's not the purpose. Tell me what the purpose is. Donald Trump wants black people to respond angrily on Juneteenth. Donald Trump, Donald Trump has to move his base racially. He has to touch their anger and their fears. So his pronouncement this week, we're not renaming army bases named after Confederate generals. That will never happen. The, the bill moved through the Senate committee. Now let's see if Mitch McConnell puts it on the floor. Then it passes the House. Then will he veto it? Well, Donald, it's all by design. See, Donald Trump doesn't want, Donald Trump does not want to actually get 
a massive number of black votes. He wants to pick off, and he specifically, Spike, he's specifically trying to find a bunch of Pauls. He got third. There was a nine. There was a thirteen point gap between black men and black women who voted for Trump versus Clinton in twenty sixteen. It was a nine point gap between black men and black women with Romney and Obama. So Democrats have had an issue how that black men have been voting more for Republicans than black women. White House told me point blank. They believe that they could get, they, I'm talking about directly, they believe they can get 15, as high as 18, or even 20% of black men to vote for them. So Donald Trump's whole... I'm, Spike, listen to me. How much Kool-Aid they been drinking? No, 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 no. But remember, no, follow me. Let me go. Remember, I just told you. That was a 13-point gap between the percent, 96% of black women voted for Hillary. Subtract 13, 83% of black men voted, 80, voted for Hillary. See the gift gap? So here's what they're doing on the money side. That's why his whole deal is First Step Act, criminal justice, and money. So they're appealing to black men who are barbers, who own their own businesses. It's all by design. This literally is their strategy. I've talked to them. Democrats, I'm going to go back to 16. I'm going to tell you, I had the conversation directly with her and her staff, Huma, and as well as Marlon Marshall, the brother, on the night of the Congressional Black Caucus Phoenix Awards, we were backstage. I said to her, Senator, I'm having a hard time getting your black surrogates, especially black men, on my show. What's your staff doing? She tells Huma and Marlon, what's going on? And then Huma, she said, Roll, I need you to go talk to them. She's taking pictures. I go talk to them. I said, y'all got black men supporting Hillary Clinton, John Legend, Magic Johnson, and others. Why can't I get them on the show? Hillary comes over. She's like, I don't understand what's going on. Huma says, uh, Secretary, we're going to get it fixed. She says, well, get it done. Because if he's having problems, I'm sure other people are. And she walked off. The next day, I told them, I said, I want Alvin Brown, who was the mayor of Jacksonville, Florida, on, who was working on the campaign on my show. 12 hours go by, never confirmed. I finally had to call Donald Brazil to come on my time join the segment. Hillary Clinton had a black male problem. Democrats have a black male problem. They are not connecting with black men, and the Republicans are looking at them economically. So that's why you hear empowerment zones. That's why you hear them talking economics. That's why he's going to go to Tulsa, because he wants to say, my economic policies, black people, really black men, are similar to Black Wall Street. That's why he's doing it. You broke it down, my man. That's why he's doing it, man. That's why he's doing it. So I've said to Tom Perez and Democrats, y'all better figure out how to talk to black men. You better, know, you better go where black men are and have real conversations and have substantive policies that appeal to black men. But, if, but I've also said to black men, stop just voting for your pocketbook because while you may say the tax breaks for Trump were great for you, his right-wing judges are not great for you and your sons. Rolling back civil rights protections are not great for you and your sons and daughters. 
And so I said, you better stop thinking again just about I got a few extra dollars in my pocket because he has no housing plan. He's actually doesn't believe in police accountability. I said, so he might, you might think he's great for your pocketbook, but he's screwing you and your community, and facts don't lie. And that's why when that fool Raynard Jackson had the nerve to call me, Don Lemon, and Joy Ann Reed out, and, I, and, I, and I'm saying, fine, bring your ass on my show, because me and you going to have that conversation. You want some heat? Come on, we're going to have some heat, because that's the game that they're playing. And, I, and so, Dr., you know Dr. Conrad Worrell. He's passed away. He gave me and Mark Thompson his last interview. He had barely any breath in his body. He died a week. He died eight days later. And this is what he said. This is a radical, revolutionary, M.O.K. Malcolm X believer, black united front. He said, black people, bury the hatchet, deal with all of our stuff. But our number one goal is to get Trump out. He died eight days after the interview. He knew he was not going to be around for November, and he wanted it on the record. And me and Mark Thompson got the interview, and I aired it a week later on a Monday, and he died the next day. He said, don't play around with this one, y'all. What they are trying to do to black people and this nation, if he gets four more years, it's going to be hell to pay. And he said, I've never believed, despite, he said, I've never believed that voting can really change a lot. I am telling you, old black people and young black people, put that nonsense aside and everybody vote. To, he said, I don't care. He said, in fact, you want a black agenda? He said, you figure that out behind closed doors, but get Trump out. That's what he said. I got to. I believe that I think the world will be in, in not only will the United States be in peril, the whole world will be if this guy's if this guy, Agent Orange, is elected again. Hundred percent true. We Spike, it's always a pleasure, man. I had we had so much fun in Dallas. We got man, like you tell we got to take that sucker. We gotta take down the road once once so uh, we get this thing turns around. I'm ready. Cause man, we had a ball and uh it was just us shooting the shit and we just let Several thousand, watch. <laughs> All right. My man. My brother. The Five Bloods. Phenomenal. I appreciate it. Y'all watch it. Netflix. Check it out. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Spike. Thank you. Peace. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.